10 million children die every year before they reach the age of five. It's 24,000 children a day, 1,000 an hour. That means before I can get to the end of this sentence, some few children will have died in terror and agony. Think of the parents of these children. Most of these men and women believe in God and are praying at this moment for their children to be spared, and their prayers will not be answered. Just like last week, the voice we heard in the video belongs to Sam Harris. And what he is describing is truly horrible. But some people say it's worse than that. It's not that it's just immensely hurtful. It's hopeless. Well, what would you say to that? Well, we understand that, that life has inescapable pain and hurts, and for some, maybe for too many, suffering. And yet God is good, and it feels as though that there's this massive gap. There's a great divide between those two statements. How do you respond to that? What is your answer to that? And are you satisfied with your answer? Our theme verse throughout this series is 1 Peter 3.15. We're told, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And what that means that it is not enough, it's not sufficient for us to simply say that there is hope. For every single one of us who are in Christ, it's our responsibility to explain the reasons that there are hope, the reasons that we have hope. Svea Mary is our pastor of spiritual formation, and when she shared her story with me, it's a story that I thought our church needed to hear. And when she shares her story, what we get is we get truth. And we get to see a real story of how real hurt is encountered with real hope. And so as Svea Mary comes, I'm, and she's going to share her story, I think that today some of us are going to feel, whether you're watching at home or you're in the room right now, you're going to feel like, I feel like this, God put this together exactly for me today. And I think that's exactly how he would want you to feel. So would you join me in welcoming Svea Mary to the stage? Imagine you're 25 years old. For some of you, that's easy. For others of you, you might have to reach back a little bit more, but I believe you. You can do it. You can do it. Imagine you're 25. You're happily married to your high school sweetheart. Things are going very well. You've got an adorable little two-year-old son, and you were just surprised to discover that baby number two is on the way. You're feeling very blessed. You're about to move back to your hometown to begin a new chapter of life, and it seems like everything is going exactly according to the way that you want it to. You feel loved by God. And then one day, your spouse goes in for a medical exam, a screening chest x-ray, and there is discovered an orange-sized mass in your spouse's lung. Suddenly, the doctors are not optimistic that your spouse will live long enough to see baby number two born. Now, I want you to think for a minute, what would be the initial questions that come to your mind in that scenario? Would, would you be laying awake at night 
wondering, how can it be that a good God would allow such bad things to happen to good people? Or maybe you have a little bit more trust in God. Maybe for you, your question is, okay, I'm going to trust you in this, God, but if I do trust you, will you show up for me and fix this and make it okay again? I don't have to wonder very hard what questions I would wonder in this. If you haven't already guessed, that story is my story. And as Pastor Rick said, my story is the reason why I want to share the hope that I have. So I want to tell you a little bit more about my story, but I also want to weave in a story from the Bible about Jesus and three of his dear friends that were suffering miserably because we can learn so much from that story to find answers to those questions that we ask about God and suffering. But in my story, so that sweetheart of mine and I grew up here in Rochester. We grew up at the same church together. I'd had a crush on him since the fourth grade, but it wasn't until we were young adults and he was in medical school up in Duluth and I was a pilot flying for Mayo Clinic and corporate jets doing air ambulance and private charter that God brought us back together again. And newlywed life was really sweet. I worked to put him through school and we dreamt of starting a family. We moved to La Crosse, Wisconsin for his residency program and when we did have our first son, I traded my identity as a pilot for a new identity as a mom. And moms out there, let me just validate for you, flying jets was a lot easier. <laughs> as many of you medical people understand, those residency years were hard. They were grueling. And so we were just kind of hanging on, waiting for that finish line of training to end so we could begin our real life. And as that residency finish line neared, we prepared to move back here home to Rochester, back to our hometown. And with a contract for him to join the family medicine department in hand, we were building our first house together and delighted to find out that baby number two was on the way. But shortly after that, right before my 26th birthday, everything changed quite dramatically. He mentioned to me one day that he was going to stay late at the hospital to get a screening chest x-ray, he'd had a cough for only about two weeks. No other real symptoms, but thought this cough just didn't seem to be getting any better and thought it might be wise to make sure it wasn't a pneumonia. It wasn't. It was cancer. That orange-sized tumor was a rare and still unexplained cartilage cancer that formed in his lung, extremely aggressive, extremely rare. The doctors here at Mayo, when they sent us here, we're shocked to discover how widely the cancer had already metastasized, and they gave him about a 50-50 chance of living long enough to see our baby born in five months. When he first got sick, it had a shockwave effect on me spiritually. We were both followers of Jesus. We had both known him since we were little kids. We both loved God. I was a so-called good Christian at Bible study every week. We knew and we believed that God was good. We believed God loved us. So this just wasn't fitting with what I thought was God's plan for our life. How could it possibly make sense that God could take away a good husband to me and a dad to our toddler and yet unborn baby? It didn't make sense. I was hurt. I was angry. I was confused. 
It just felt like suddenly my world was upside down and there was no ground under my feet. And that's one of the reasons I love the vision that we have here at Autumn Ridge. We want to be a church of all cultures where curious, skeptical, and hurting people love to attend. And it's so dear to my heart because I felt every one of those things in those days. I needed this. Now, I'll come back to my story in a minute, but I want to take you to another story, the story from the Gospel of John, because there's a gold mine of truths in that story that can help us with our questions about God and suffering. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. There's some great details in this paragraph. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, a story was recorded about these two sisters, about Mary and Martha. They were devoted followers of Jesus, and you can read more about them in Luke chapter 10, or you can even have a little fun with this. If you know anyone who's been in the church world for a little while, a woman about my age, ask her if she's a Mary or a Martha. (laughs) Trust me, she'll know. (laughs) These sisters had a really sweet relationship with Jesus. And in this paragraph, we find out that their brother is loved by him as well, but he's sick. And that detail may grip us. If they're so loved by Jesus, why is he sick? We'll see later in the story that when Mary and Martha summon Jesus, when they send word asking for his help, they have full confidence that Jesus will show up for them and do whatever work of healing needs to happen, they knew Jesus well. They'd seen him heal many people before. They'd seen him heal strangers. So if he can heal strangers, how much more should they be able to depend on him to heal the one that he loves? And when my husband was sick, I very much felt that way too. I believed God. I had been a Christian since my preschool days, and I loved him, and I believed he loved me. So it made sense to me that if God would do a work of healing in anyone's life, it would happen for us. And I was so ready for that to make God look good, because that does make God look good when he answers our prayers the way we want, right? It wasn't progressing that way for us, though. Frequent scans showed that the orange was now the size of a grapefruit, and it was not only making it very difficult for him to breathe, the blood flow was now getting cut off to his heart. Over the next few months, our lives revolved around clinic appointments and hospital stays, chemotherapy and countless procedures for him, and prenatal appointments for me. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. That sounds good, right? That's what we want when we suffer. We want to know that our worst case scenario will not happen. It's for God's glory. He's going to do something amazing here. I was so eager to give God all the glory for what he was doing in our story. I believed he could do something really amazing for us. But then their story takes a really weird turn in the next verse. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. 
And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. We start wondering, huh? Jesus, what are you doing? Your friends called you, or they didn't call you, your friends summoned you to ask for help, and you're just staying where you are. Now, the disciples who he said this to may have been okay with that. We find out in the next verses that when they'd been there last, their lives were very much threatened, and they're probably thinking, that's okay, let's just stay put, let's not go back there where we might get killed. But Jesus goes on, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. They're probably thinking, Jesus, we're going to get killed if we go back there. So if the sick guy's resting, let him rest. <laughs> and Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. Now what would you be thinking if you were one of the disciples at this minute? Jesus, first your good friends have summoned you in distress. Then you do nothing for two days. Now you're telling us he's died and now you wanna go back there? The next verse is awesome. Then Thomas says, Thomas also known as Didymus said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. <laughs> I love the sarcasm in that verse. I mean, maybe he's saying it with extraordinary faith that should erase the doubting Thomas nickname he has, but either way, it gives voice to this, this frustration we feel. God, I don't know what you're doing. It just feels like we're gonna die here. <laughs> and when my husband was sick, I felt that way sometimes myself too. We were at the end of our rope shortly after his diagnosis. The with both of us out of work, the bank canceled the mortgage on the house that we were supposed to close on and move in in two weeks' time. And then to make financial matters even worse, our health insurance company denied treatment of all of the cancer care that he needed here at Mayo. We just felt like we were reaching out to God and he was staying put. It began to feel more and more hopeless for us. I imagine what Mary and Martha must have felt as they were standing out, looking on the horizon, waiting for Jesus to come, initially full of expectancy that he would, and then over time thinking, why isn't he coming? I believed God loved me. I believed he was powerful, but it just felt like he wasn't showing up. And that confusion between a God who I thought was loving, but who's not there for me right now, in the way that that felt was very disconcerting. And that's what's at the heart of our struggles with God and suffering, isn't it? C.S. Lewis, the beloved author and theologian, refers to this struggle as the problem of pain. And he defined that the way that people do struggle with this apparent difference between God and the way we feel in our suffering this way. If God were good, he would make his creatures perfectly happy. And if he were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished, but the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. Now, 
I hope you either already have or you will today pick up a copy of the book that Pastor Rick mentioned last week, Tim Keller's outstanding book, The Reason for God. We have it available in the lobby over there. And in that book, suffering is the second chapter because it is for many of us the biggest hurdle that we have to navigate in order to find our way back to peace with God. It's an issue that's at the crux of what we're calling the great divide, what some perceive to be this chasm between faith and reason. And we may try to rationalize our way to God throughout all of our questions about God and suffering, but Pain is not always rational, is it? And we may try to soothe our pain with expressions of faith, but if our faith isn't grounded on truth, what good is that? No, to address the problem of pain, we don't need to reject reason, and we don't need to ignore our faith. We need to embrace both. Indeed, our serious thesis is that faith is not in competition with reason. It's a consequence of reason. It's trusting in what is true. I had a powerful experience in some of those dark days that challenged me to my core and it left my faith forever stronger. In those days when we were drowning in these grim medical realities and financial problems and what looked like a bleak future, I felt that God reached out to me and he gave me a choice. I could either remain in my anger and in my doubts, just digging in my heels against God. Or I could release myself of that and stop trying to control what was uncontrollable and surrender and trust that what I had believed about him, that he is good, that he is powerful, that he is faithful, was still true. It was a crossroads moment of my life, and and as I was wrestling through this, I had this image of myself as a little girl, at a swimming pool on a hot summer's day, and and I was kind of having a temper tantrum on the side of this pool, but in the pool was this picture of Jesus standing there with his arms outstretched to me like a really good dad saying, it's okay, jump to me, I will catch you. And in that, I made a mental and a spiritual leap off of the side into the arms of my Savior, trusting that he would catch me, and he did. And I don't have nearly enough time to tell you about all the ways that I saw him catch us, the ways that he met every need that we had through the love of our family and our friends and our church community. It wasn't that he took us out of our suffering. We were still very much in the middle of that storm, but he was faithful to provide what we needed, even if it was just what we needed for that day. Now, John did live to our most hoped-for milestone. He was there to see our baby born and hold him in his earliest weeks, but a month or so later, a brain tumor and several other new metastases were discovered, and the cancer just spiraled out of control. On May Day of 2004, John breathed his final breath on earth and was welcomed into his heavenly home, and I went home to a new chapter as a single mom to a two-month-old and a two-year-old. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. 
When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Martha displays an impressive amount of faith here. And it's a response full of devotion and trust in Jesus, her Lord. After John died, I related to much of what she conveyed here, both the confusion that, Lord, you didn't show up the way I expected you to, and if you had, it wouldn't have happened this way. But she also displays something so important for us to see. She displays this surviving hope, this confidence that God could still do anything but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. It's so powerful for us to recognize this when we are suffering and God doesn't answer our prayers in the way that we want him to. Martha seems to have that kind of faith that just compelled her to trust and to leap into her Savior's arms. She didn't know why Jesus did what she did, but because she knew Jesus, she knew the end of the story was not yet written. But Poor Mary. Did you notice here when it said Mary stayed at home? Now, I don't want to read too much into the text that's not there, but if you know the other stories about Mary, you know that every other time she's depicted, she is literally at Jesus' feet, eager to learn from him, to minister to him. So it seems notable And John seems to have felt it important to record this, that in this hour when she was so deep in her grief, She stayed at home. And how many of us can relate to that? When God just doesn't answer our prayers the way we want, when he's not doing what we think he should do for us, we withdraw and we emotionally stay at home. If we're honest with ourselves, most of us probably wish that God worked by rewarding our faith, by rewarding our good behavior, by rewarding our prayers, by answering the way we want And when he doesn't, it's upsetting. But think about this. What if God's actions truly could be dictated by our behavior? What if we could expect him just to act on our command? Would we really want a God who always obeys us like a tame dog? We must remember that though we might not see a good reason for why God does what he does, it doesn't mean there isn't one. Mary staying home is understandable, but Martha's hopeful faith and trust, even when Jesus doesn't make sense to her, is such an important thing for us to reflect on when we consider the problem of pain. She didn't let the darkness of her suffering erase the truth that she knew about Jesus. This was key to my survival when John died. Hope and faith that God was still God. One of my friends used to say, do not forget about what you knew about Jesus in the light, even when you are in the night. How do we have the kind of hopeful faith that Martha did, though? I don't think it comes from just muscling our way to it. I think the opposite is probably more likely. Hopeful faith grows out of trust and surrender. I think it looks more like that picture of leaping off of the side of the hot stones into the pool, into the arms of our good God who will catch us. 
on nights when I was a single mom lying awake, terrified of every unexplained noise that I was hearing in the house, hopeful faith grew by reading Bible verses about fear over and over and over again until the truth of them began to sink in and calm me. Hopeful faith grew when even though the grief that I was feeling was overwhelming at times, I would pray, and, and by pray, sometimes I mean using words to talk to God. Sometimes it was just groans or cries and trust that God knew what was in my heart. And in, invariably, some friend would reach out to me or a hopeful sign of encouragement would come. Hopeful faith came in a powerful way about two years after I'd been widowed and I began thinking about how nice it would be to be married again and for my sons to have a dad. But the complications of dating as a single mom just seemed a little bit too steep and so I very specifically prayed on one day, God, I'm not gonna go out and search for anyone but if you have someone that you want in my life, you're gonna have to just put them right in front of me and make it obvious. And he did. Four days later, I met Steve Mary, and four months after that, we were married. And I'll tell you, what brought us together so deeply and so quickly was our shared experience of having encountered God's faithfulness to us in our suffering. You see, Steve and his first wife were not strangers to suffering themselves. They had been missionaries in West Africa with their young family and having endured infertility and a terrifying ordeal being caught in the Civil War in the Ivory Coast. They were brought here to Rochester to Mayo for her leukemia treatment. They became members of Autumn Ridge shortly after they arrived here, and some of you sitting here today were among those who prayed for her and for their sweet young children as they were here in that time, and you probably experienced the same kind of confusion that we talked about when God didn't answer your prayers in the way that seemed like a good answer. And I do forgive any of you for wondering at the time what Steve was thinking for meeting me and then marrying me so quickly after... (laughs) after she died, and yes, it was awkward joining this church in the shadow of the woman who preceded me, but I am even more confident today than I was 15 years ago when we stood exactly in this spot and said, I do, that God brought us together. And while it would be fun to present this part of our story as like the fairy tale happy ending or like God's reward for us for suffering like good soldiers and that we had done well and now this was our our blessing for that, that wouldn't be fair because as it is for many of you, God's work to grow us, to shape us into the people that we are now has continued through difficulty and through suffering. One of the clearest chapters of that came about five years, almost to the day that John died when one of our sons was also diagnosed with cancer. And I'll let you know right away, he is fine. Surgery removed his tumor and six weeks of radiation has kept it away for 10 years now. And we thank God for that. We thank him for answering those prayers exactly in the way that we wanted him to. And sometimes it really is easier to say, praise God for what you do. We saw how he used that chapter of difficulty in our life to take a story that we had each lived individually and now he brought us together through it and bound our blended family together. Those kinds of experiences when we can so easily see God's goodness in our suffering makes it easier to have that kind of hope that he's doing something good. But other times we might want that hope, but we don't always see it. Perhaps like Mary. She maybe wasn't even sure what to hope for in her suffering. So why don't we go back and look and see what gave Martha the hope she had. 
right after Martha told Jesus that she believed God could do anything that he asked, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Martha believed that what she was suffering was not all there was. She believed that at the last day, God would make everything right again. She would see her brother again. All the suffering would end, and despite her pain, she trusts that what she knows about Jesus is still true. And Jesus affirms that all who believe, all who understand that he is the resurrection and the life will live with him forever. And this was true for Martha, and it's just as true for all of us who believe today. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And this is powerful hope. And it's not only hope for the future, it's hope for today. The power of Jesus as the resurrection and the life gives power to our present suffering. It gives us the strength we need to face another day. It gives us the ability to trust that even when God doesn't make sense, he still loves us and he still has purpose in our suffering. After this conversation, Martha went and found Mary gently telling her in private that Jesus had arrived and he was asking for her. And upon hearing that, Mary got up and he, she went to him. And now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And the next verse lets us know that she began weeping immediately. She can only get out this one sentence before becoming overwrought with grief. And we can almost envision the look on her face of, Lord, why? I trusted you. Now, if you were Jesus, and you know what we know as readers of this story, that your plan all along has been to allow this to happen because you're about to bring Lazarus back from the dead. How would you respond to Mary? Would you respond, maybe like I think I probably would, oh, Mary, it's okay. You don't need to cry. You're, you're wasting your, your grief, your, your energy right now, and it's gonna be all right. I'm gonna do something incredible. You are going to be amazed at what I can do in just a minute. Don't cry. But that's not what Jesus did. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. At the sight of seeing someone that he loved grieving with Mary, Jesus wept. Like us, God is grieved by the evil and the injustice and the horrors of the world. Death and disease breaks his heart 
just as it does ours. And though this is the famously shortest verse in the Bible, we should not read over Jesus wept too quickly because it's incredible that God agrees with us that the things that cause us pain are worth weeping over, even if he has a reason for it, even if he's about to do something good through it. Jesus wept means that God sees our pain. Jesus wept means that God understands our hurt. Jesus wept is proof of his love for us, even when it doesn't make sense. This truth brought me a lot of comfort after John died. I was talking one day with a friend about prayer, and I was asking her, what do you think God thought when he heard all of those prayers from all of these people that were praying that he would heal John? And he knew all along that that's not how our story would end. What was God thinking? And my wise friend said, I bet he heard all of those prayers. And probably like a really good parent, it broke his heart to know that he couldn't give you his child what you were asking for. And like that good parent feels in that kind of situation, You ache because you can't yet explain to your little one why you're doing what you're doing, and I bet he wept with you. But maybe you're thinking, well, that's kind, but I have friends who can weep with me. I know other people that can give me that kind of empathy. I expect more from God, and that's fair. Why don't we finish this story? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. And now all of my sisters out there who identify as Martha's are totally tracking with her here. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Can you imagine what this moment must have been like for Mary? How about for Martha? What was it like for Lazarus? (laughs) For the disciples that have been watching this, the onlookers who were there? What was it like for Jesus? But let me ask a couple of hard questions. Do you think the moment of this amazing experience erased all of the pain and confusion of the previous days? What do we do with that when it seems like what Jesus did there isn't compatible? with his character? How do we reconcile suffering that seems incompatible with the character of a good and loving God? Do you remember back from the beginning of this story why Jesus said he delayed in going back to be with his friends? Why he intentionally let Lazarus die? He said, 
For your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. The resurrection of Lazarus was not all about relieving the suffering of Mary and Martha. It was for their sake, but it was also for the disciples' sake and the onlookers' sake and for our sake. Indeed, it was for the sake of all people who encounter this story so that we may believe. Because you see, the power that's demonstrated by Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus can give us the confidence to trust in the power of his own resurrection. It gives us the hope to know that the suffering that we face in this broken world is not all that there is. Because for any of you that still want to raise your fist and say, it should not be this way. Suffering just simply should not exist. You're right. You are absolutely right. Death and disease and violence and injustice and evil should not exist in a world with a God who is good and all-powerful. And one day it won't. Jesus, the Son of God who came into this world to experience suffering with us and for us, did that so that one day, and here's the bottom line, when Jesus comes again, suffering will end forever and life will be as it should. Jesus took on himself all of the wrath that God feels at every broken thing in this world so that when the resurrection story that is told is not Lazarus's and not Jesus, but ours, all of us who believe will finally live in that world where God does not permit suffering. Death and disease, and violence, and injustice, and wars, and evil will be a thing of the past. And like Mary and Martha experienced in a brief and a really intense way in that moment, we will experience for all of eternity that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, you may see God's glory and suffering soon. I've seen it many times and in many ways. Or you may have to be a hopeful Martha longer than you want. But all of us who believe will one day see with perfect clarity that what we suffer today is temporary compared to the eternal life of peace and love and joy that we will experience forever in the presence of God. And not only that, we may see that the temporary things that we are suffering today are exactly what God may be using to give hope and encouragement to someone else. The credibility, why we can give an answer to everyone who asks the reasons for the hope that we have. Now in the book, The Reason for God, the chapter on suffering concludes with a powerful quote from C.S. Lewis, and it's what I want to leave you with now. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, we are in awe of your glory. Lord, I pray for... Everyone who is experiencing suffering right now, though, 
that you would be their comfort, that you would give them the hope to see your glory. I pray that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would see your love and your faithfulness to meet them in the storm that they are in, that you would give them the hope to continue trusting that who you are is still good and powerful and that you are the truth. Lord, we do love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.